Welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast. Podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North. And our guest for us today is Ed Blackwood, pastor of Colorado Springs uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in Colorado Springs. He just admitted to us offline that he's never listened to this podcast before, so I'm not uh, I'm not sure how this interview is going to go. But Ed, welcome to the podcast. He's giving us a <laughs> thumbs up. You got to talk. People are listening. Give me a thumbs down. Thumbs down. Out in me. Mm-hmm. he'll do that he's done that before <laughs> men are not safe to speak off the air before the podcast with aaron murray because he's gonna blab about it that uh may it's or may not true. be true <laughs> it's 100 true well you don't have to worry about me blabbing too much because i'm feeling a bit under the weather today uh, i got sore throat and a few other things so joe is going to be leading most of these questions you might hear me pop in and out uh with some follow-up questions, but Joe's going to be taking the uh, the lead here uh, primarily. So, Joseph, I hand it over to you, Ed. You don't have to worry about me outing you on anything else the rest of the podcast. <laughs> All righty. So, specifically, the first couple questions uh, we had for Ed are some things that, that we think um, he can definitely speak to and be interesting and helpful on uh, due to his, his experience and giftedness. And so, Ed, the first question uh, that we would like to ask you, and it's it's got multiple parts to it, so we'll we'll start here. Um, you are a man with church planting experience, and so we're curious. Uh, what can you tell us about the blessings and the challenges of church planting, uh, per your experience? And then, as a follow up, and and I can say this again if we get off track, but uh, now that you're pastoring, you've been pastoring for a little bit now, an established church, uh, what are some of the differences that you've noticed so far between church planting and pastoring and establishing church? So that's broad overview of the two parts, but starting off, what can you tell us about the blessings and challenges of church planting? Well, one of the things that immediately came to mind with that is I loved the newness of church planting. Um, when I was in seminary, a lot of us were thinking about church planting, reading about it, and to experience it was a joy. Um, you, you don't have anybody else's mistakes to build on. You just get to build on your own mistakes. Um, and But there is a freshness to a church plant. Um, I shared in Dr. York's, uh, Barry York's church planting class um, last summer that church planting was the hardest pastoral ministry experience I've ever had. And it was the most rewarding pastoral ministry experience I've ever had. And then full disclosure, at that point, it was the only pastoral ministry experience <laughs> I'd ever had. That was my, my, my previous two pastorates were in church planning. Now that's no longer true, but it was true at the time. And we'll talk about that later. Um, you said blessings and challenges. I'm going to say challenges and blessings. Um, one of the significant challenges for many church planters is there are few, if any, elders on the ground with a church planter 
in, in many of our situations, we're small churches and we usually have borrowed uh, elders either through a temporary governing body or a commission of a presbytery. Um, and that's, that's hard. Um, in fact, I'll just comment now. I love ministering here. I've been here only three months. I'm still learning. But to have four mature, godly elders right beside me, week after week in the pews, in the church, from the front, um, that's, that's different from one of the challenges of, of church planting. Um, one of the other challenges for me, especially, and it's related to that same problem, is when you lose the heart of people, and every pastor at times loses the hearts of people, either a disagreement or don't like the style, or whatever. there are all sorts of ways to do it. There's nobody, there's not very many people around to help try to gain their heart back. Um, we had a provisional elder in my first pastorate who had to leave the Lord closed down his work and he had to leave. And after that, we had a man come along and I became convinced if I, if my other friend could have still been here, I think he could have reached this man's heart in a way that I couldn't. Um, another challenge is just ministry partners who fall away from the ministry. I'm not saying entirely from Christ, although sometimes that happens, but there are, there are pictures I have of my ministry that I just weep when I look at because there are people that I loved and labored side by side that they either betrayed or, you know, got disgruntled anyway. And it's, it's, a, it's often a long way from much support, family support. Obviously, when we were in Australia, that was a long way from family support. But having said that, the biggest challenge in church planting, which I think is the biggest challenge in pastoring an established church, is me the sinner. Um, you know, I've, I've faced criticism in my ministry, and sometimes I thought it was unjust criticism, but I knew even when it was unjust that I was worse than they knew. And uh, that's the challenge. Um, blessings. <laughs> I think one of the great blessings of church planning is you got to evangelize or the church is going to die. <laughs> the, the pressure and the encouragement and the hope that God saves people from their sin, like he saved me. And in, in most of our churches, we need to see the gospel spread in order to see the church grow and establish. Um, and then to see the result of that. Um, there are, I have good reason to believe, people in glory that the Lord saved through my involvement in church planning ministry in southern Indiana and in um, Australia. And, and so that's a great blessing. But the pressure to do that is, is also a blessing, even though it's a pressure. Um, the reality is the only other option is to, and you can put this in nice terms, attract Christians from other churches, or you can put it in less nice terms, steal sheep. That's the only option in terms of your church growing. You're either going to evangelize or you're going to get people from other churches. And one of the hard experiences that I had in both my church planting ministries was sometimes church planting attracts disgruntled people. Hmm. And I've been famously quoted as having said, it's hard to get disgruntled people gruntled again. 
<laughs> Usually, if they come to your church upset about their previous church, they're going to end up upset about your church at some point. Um, and so, again, just that pressure to reach people with the gospel, was a, it was really a blessing. Um, and I think one of the other blessings, and this may sound counterintuitive, but in my experience in church planning, I felt not a lot of support except my good wife and my great savior. And while that's a painful place to be, it's a great place to be hmm. because God has given me a good wife and she was a great supporter in my pastoral ministry. She knew of my failures and didn't overlook them, but she was also just a great encouragement to me. And then just to know that Christ is in it. And I'm not, I'm not building his church. He's building his church. And so that was very much an encouragement to me and a, ble and a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, Real quick. I just, <clears throat> looked up the word gruntled and it is an actual word ed so you're uh you're in the clear and it does mean exactly what you think it means uh, and good humor happy or contented it's a funny word because it doesn't sound happy or contented it sounds gruntled <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's good um and there was just even all kinds of uh pastoral wisdom sprinkled there uh throughout your answer uh from from your experience in that and kind of related uh to that and you already started touching on it you and I, honestly i think i had forgot i was unclear in my mind if your uh time in australia was a church plant or an established congregation so that's even uh enlightening and and clarifying for me so having had two uh, church planting opportunities and having been involved in those. And now, again, as you touched on recently, three or four months, whatever you said exactly, uh, ha um, having been pastoring an established church, or maybe you mentioned three or four men, I don't know, three or four something or another, but now pastoring in an established church, uh, what are uh, some of the differences you've noted so far. And again, you noted one of those and would be happy to have you expand upon that more uh, being, you know, the blessing of having uh, godly men on the ground active in the ministry with you in the local congregation. But yeah, so what, what expand on that or what are some other things you've noticed in the differences between the church plants and the established church? Okay. Well, let me, let me help you with the numbers. Yes. <laughs> Three and four. I'm in my third month. Okay. And I have four elders. There you go. <laughs> I wasn't too far off. I heard no, three, no, four months and elders. Um, but the interesting thing is I'm in my third month and I'm still a long way from knowing all the ministry that's going on at Springs Reformed Church. And that's because other people are doing ministry and they've been doing it and they're continuing to do it. And I don't, as a church planter, you know everything that's going on because usually you've started it or you've collaborated with someone else to start it. And it really is a, an interesting and I think a good thing that when you have healthy established churches that people have been equipped to do works of ministry. And, uh, you know, I don't I still don't know the full monthly schedule of small groups and other ministries that are going on. I'm learning it and I'm, I'm thankful for that. 
Um, again, just a labor with four strong elders beside me. Um, as we were preparing to take this call, um, I mean, after, after I accepted the calls, we were preparing to come here. Provisional elder Kelly Moore assigned, uh, gave us an assignment that I would meet individually with each of the elders uh, at least once a week to pray for at least 10 minutes. You, you just put some boundaries on it. Not that there's something magic about 10 minutes, but just the way that that has deepened my love and affection for these men and given me a sense of what they're doing in terms of ministry as a shepherd of the flock has been a, a great thing. I think one of the differences, um, there's a temptation to put more emphasis, and I'm going to use words from uh, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, to put more emphasis on the trellis than on the vine. Uh, in their book, The Trellis and the Vine, they talk about vine work, and this is their definition, the prayerful preaching and teaching of the word of God to see people converted and grow to maturity as disciples of Christ. Vine work is the Great Commission. And there's trellis work, creating and maintaining the physical and organizational structures and programs that support vine work and its growth. And, and in their book, and I think the reality is in probably in any church, even a church plant, but maybe more so in an established work, you can put more emphasis on the trellis. Um, Springs Reformed Church has put a lot of energy over the last year into a building. We purchased a building about a year ago, hoping to move into it in March. Um, and it's, it's taken a lot of our energy. Now, I think in that transition time, it was necessary, but it, it certainly did probably cut down on some of the vine work that the church had been doing. Um, and, I, and I just hope as we move into it that we can put renew emphasis on the vine work, on preaching and teaching and discipling. Um, I think maybe related in terms of a difference, and I, this isn't my experience here in three months, but I've talked to people in established churches. You can be tempted to be content. You know, we've sort of arrived as a church. We're at a self-supporting, we're at a comfortable level, um, whatever that level is. You know, we, in the RP church, our big churches are pretty small churches in the evangelical <laughs> world. But whether it's, you know, whether it's 50 or 100 or 150, whatever, I think there's a temptation more so in an established church, perhaps, to be content and maybe a little fear of reaching out. Like we're pretty comfortable. We're a nice group. We like each other. And if we have some non-Christians come in and hear the gospel and come to faith, they might be different from us. And do we want that? I don't sense that here, but I just think it's one of the challenges that I want to be on guard against in my own heart and in the life of our congregation. How um, have you thought through any ways yet? I mean, obviously three months, I'm sure many things are, like you said, you're not even 100% up to steam yet on the monthly schedule. So I understand if you have not, but I mean, have you thought about um? Just any of the ways that, that you hope to, or have you had any conversations with a session of ways you hope to combat kind of those two um, ditches that established churches can fall into, focusing on uh, the trellis work and or um, getting getting comfortable? Yeah, I've and we've talked about it. One of the questions I asked the men when I was considering the call was who are you putting your effort in? Who are you discipling? And I want to just continue that. And I'm encouraged that our elders are spending time with, with people in the congregation. 
uh, both men for particular discipling, but also the shepherding visits. They're very active in that. Um, I think um, just to, to, to kind of constantly keep this in front of us. So I put together a session agenda. Is, is this, is there, is there vine work or is this mostly trellis work? Are we mostly talking about structure and programs? Or are we talking about people? One of the patterns that the session had before I came, which I'm very thankful for, is the first item on the agenda is shepherding reports. And the second item on the agenda is to pray. And I think sometimes in my experience, and as I've talked to others, sometimes you leave that to last, it gets squeezed out. And so I think that's one of the ways to keep that in front of us, the people and the praying. Um, and then I think sometimes we may just have to be willing to reach out. And I, and I may, the Lord may let me help us reach out, especially as we move into a new building. We're in a new, a new neighborhood. We hope to be a really a signpost for the gospel here. And so I think look for opportunities to do that, I think might help us in that. Yeah, no, that's that's good. Uh, what you just said there, um, and that that would be good uh, for just any listeners to hear, any pastors or elders or whatever. But I think especially a young pastor who um, could get called somewhere, something to think of. It's something I saw practiced at Grace Gibsonia was uh, opening session meetings with prayer, uh, specific congregational prayer and shepherding. Uh, cause like you said, not only does, uh, is it, is it easy to get squeezed out if you save it to the end, uh, when everybody's minds are burned and, and all of that and, and, uh, all of this, but it, it really orients the entire meeting. You know, mm -hmm. if you open up talking about the color of the carpet that we're putting in next week, by the time you get to shepherding, you may have guys that are already barking at each other. You know, I mean, it just, it, it totally, it really does orient the entire meeting, regardless of what you talk about. You're all of a sudden talking about everything as shepherds at that right. point in time. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's great. And we, we do that here. Uh, and it's, it's really been helpful. So that's good. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, so still somewhat related uh, to to all of these things we've been talking about. Your experience as a pastor, and just so our listeners know, and maybe you'll say this. I mean, you went from two church plants, and then for quite some time, you've been at the seminary. Uh, you were the first and only admissions that the seminary has or ever will have. Um, but you had that, and now you're back. You're back into the pastorate. Um, and that as an older man, I've been preaching through Titus. And so I've been learning biblical distinctions between young men and older men. Uh, you certainly by any of the standards, uh, if I remember right, are over 60 now. So you definitely fall into the older man category. So you're coming Just back real, into real the quick, Joe, I might, you know, call people out, but I never have once called someone old. Hey, this, the silver older, hair, the silver hair is the glory of the old man. So yeah, it's but a you don't see people making fun of you for not having hair. I'm I, not I, making fun <laughs> of him. <laughs> All right, I, I got it. This was a compliment. A compliment. Okay, carry on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, just sit there, you pink-eyed, sore throat. 
Um, sorry, Ed. Back to back to our profitable conversation. Um, so yeah, you're back in, and as an older man, meaning with lots of experience, lots of wisdom. Um, so we're just curious if you can talk as a man who entered the pastorate as a young man, out of the pastorate, and now you come back in as an older man. Um, can you just talk about that for a little bit? In out in all of that, whatever you'd like to tell us about that, we're eager to hear. All right. I'll start with young and old. So there was a clear interest in the Springs Reformed Church at calling an older pastor. And I hope they don't realize that's what they got and realize it wasn't what they wanted, especially when I, when my age shows in my own mind and I forget what I'm talking about or who I'm talking to or what their names are. And so I am an older man. No question about that. Um, I was out of the pastorate twice. So I, I pastored for 10 years. And for five years, we were back in Indianapolis after the church plant closed in Evansville. Um, then we were in Australia for almost 10 years. And then for the last eight years, almost eight years, I've been director of ed missions. Thank you for that, for that edifying pronunciation <laughs> of that uh, for eight years. And then recently accepted the call to Springs. Um, I loved what I did in those interim years. Um, God was very good to us. I, I had work that I enjoyed. I had many opportunities to preach. I felt like I wasn't far removed from pastoral ministry, but I knew I wasn't in pastoral ministry. And I, I, I think I was faithful in those intervening years. I wasn't seeking a call. I think everybody who knows me knows that. Um, but Nancy and I, my wife, became convinced that the Lord was calling me to this ministry once again. And I really am delighted to be back in full-time pastoral ministry. I, I, I miss the seminary still. I, uh, I, you know, deep, deep friendships. I was a student at seminary with Barry York, and then to work under him and with him was a, was a delight. But I love devoting myself again to full-time pastoral ministry. It's it, Day in, day out, I'm just thankful that this is where God's put me. And, you know, probably probably my last uh, ministry of, of my adult years, um, if, if the Lord's willing that I can play this out till I retire. So, yeah. I don't mean play. That was a bad choice of words. <laughs> if I can faithfully labor in this call uh, until I get old, Aaron. Yeah. But, Joe said I was older, but at some point I'll be old. Yeah. No, that's that's good. Yeah, um, I remember Aaron and I and, and maybe some others. It was just, um, I mean, our hearts uh, used to go out for you because in seminary it was so clear uh, in your lectures and just that you loved doing what you were doing at seminary and we're all in on it. But you could just tell um, – I think based both on experience and your absolute love for the Lord and his people and the ministry, uh, that you did have uh, this itch and this desire uh, to get back into pastoral ministry. So I just know conversations amongst ourselves. Um, we kind of expected it if, if the right call came along. Um, and, and so we're all super excited for you and are certain 
that uh, you will faithfully uh, uh, perform the ministry there at Springs and that they'll be greatly blessed uh, by you. Did you have any more thoughts at all while I was blabbing on any of that? No, I don't think so. Okay, cool. I think we covered that point. Cool, cool. So another thing, so kind of again, uh, connection uh, between what you've been doing and what you're doing now. Um, you you were an adjunct professor at RPTS and specifically uh, the adjunct professor of the evangelism class. And uh, again, that was a class that I really loved. I remember <laughs> Aaron and I getting the syllabus at Presbytery in Kokomo, I think. Uh, and you were there and us coming up to you and giving you a hard time about how full it was. But it actually came uh, to be, I found, uh, one of the geniuses of that class was the weekly assignments on top of everything else because it, it just kept your mind on evangelism for a sustained time over that entire 12 weeks. And I think that was as beneficial as anything in that class. So anyway, you, you are someone not just being a pastor uh, who's to carry on uh, the work of evangelism, but you actually uh, taught the evangelistic course. You've taught pastors uh, about evangelism. And so um, being that, we're, we're curious just to hear your take on the role of the pastor, your role now uh, as the pastor in leading the congregation in evangelism. And then again, just to float the follow-up, uh, kind of what tips and strategies have you found helpful uh, in evangelism yourself or to, to that other pastors for leading in evangelism that you'd be happy to share. But first question, what's the role of the pastor in leading the congregation in evangelism? Well, I, I'm convinced that the pastor has to be involved in doing evangelism of various sorts himself. And I don't, I don't feel like I've started very aggressively yet. Now, <laughs> Harry, Harry Metzger won't accept this as an excuse, but my excuse is it's cold and it's wintertime and it gets dark early. <laughs> he found that was the best time to knock on doors in Chicago winters because people would let him in the door. They wouldn't talk with the door open. Um, but we, the Lord provided a house for us about a half mile from the church building. And the fact that we're getting ready to move into a church building, but we're not in it yet has I mean we're in a temporary facility and I've wanted to be doing evangelistic contacts in the neighborhood of the new church building but I I really want to do it when we're in or almost in the building um, I walk to work to my office most days and I've begun just it's it's one street uh, from our house to the church building and I've begun praying as I walk past these doors and these houses for the people that live there. And I'd like to do some door to door in the area all around the church building, but that one street 
my plan is to knock on the door, introduce myself as the new pastor at the church that's just moving in down the street and ask, can I pray for you? And, and leave it at that and then try to repeat those contacts. So that's, that's what I would like to do over the first, you know, several months even in, in terms of that street. I think cold calling, I think, I, I just think the pastor needs to be doing evangelism. And my plan coming here was that I would do some evangelism on my own, probably cold calling, door knocking. I've thought about trying to see what campus ministries are going on actively in the local colleges and universities. Haven't done that yet, but would like to do that. I think the other thing a pastor should do is as much as possible. I don't, it's not a mandate, but preach to unbelievers in each sermon. Um, that was impressed on me by someone else. And uh, I just think it's useful. Um, it helps the congregation be encouraged that, Hey, if I bring my non-Christian friends, the pastor is going to speak to them. It helps the congregation to have an idea of this is what I might say to a non-Christian friend. Um, and so I, I think both doing evangelism and then preaching to unbelievers in each sermon what my, what my hope is in terms of the ministry here is that I'll do some evangelism on my own and then I'll involve us, invite a small number of others to join me before we make it kind of a big church event. Um, I think there's value in church events in evangelism, a, an evangelistic seminar, for example, a Saturday seminar. How can we as a church think about reaching the community around us? Um, Andrew dinners uh, where you invite non-Christians and Christians together and you have a presentation of the gospel, uh, other public events. Like we hope not long after we're in the building to have some kind of a public open house and, you know, maybe wait till it's warm enough to have, you know, some barbecue grills outside and, and just invite the neighbors to come in. But in some way also give them something of the gospel, whether it's a talk or a pamphlet. Um, and then I think, just keep asking God for souls publicly from the pulpit as you, as you interact with people privately. Um, I, I'm convinced that, that talking about evangelism and praying about evangelism lead to doing evangelism. Mm -hmm. So those are some kind of all over the place thoughts about no, your question. That, yeah, no, that's good. Um, so what, what is, uh, we know that you love door to door. Um, what, what do you see as the main benefits to door to door? Or maybe, maybe you could take this a little bit, cause I do think this is a helpful thing. Um, especially for, for reformed churches, it can be easy for us to just for whatever reasons, not be as involved evangelistically as others. Um, so maybe just to help churches, people think through, some of the pros and cons of the various methods that, that you, you know, from street preaching to door to door, to Andrew dinners, to, to tracks, to, to these things um, that, that have kind of informed your philosophy uh, of these various methods. Well, I do think, and you know this from the class that having a gospel track that you can engage someone in a conversation and give to them regularly is a valuable thing. Usually, unless the Lord really opens a door, that's a one-off. Usually that's with somebody either you're on, a, you're on a bus with them or a plane or you meet them in a shop. 
um, and you might not ever see them again. Doesn't mean it's invaluable. I mean, it's, it's not valuable. It can be very valuable. Um, we hear about people who've seen people come to Christ through that regularly. Um, to me, the advantage of knocking on doors is if there's any opening, I know where that person lives and I can come back. And, you know, like I said, this street between our house and the church building, I would love it if the Lord would let me meet people to the point that when I walk down the street, I can say, hey, Joe, you know, how's, how's your wife? And, and be their friend as well as the pastor in the church up the street. Now, only, only God can make that happen. But I, I do think knowing where people live, that's to me one of the benefits of knocking on doors is you, you can go back. So whenever I've done door knocking in ministry, I've kept records. You know, this door we talked to, this is what they said. <laughs> Don't come back. This door nobody answered. So next time I go out in that neighborhood, I'm going to go to that door and try them again. Um, this store, we had a real good conversation. Maybe I can go back in a few months and say, hey, I was thinking about our conversation a few months ago. Do you have time to talk some more? Um, to me, that's one of the, the major advantages of door knocking is you know where people live. Mm -hmm. No, that's um, good. So as far you know, because door knocking evangelism, I think um, because there's a... a an aspect of spiritual warfare to it. Uh, we have indwelling sin. You know, if if you wanted to go talk to somebody on the street about uh, the how the Broncos are doing or whatever, you wouldn't be near as nervous as if you were going to go up and speak to them about Christ. You know, I've delivered pizzas a lot in my life. Never been nervous to take a pizza up to a door, but to go up and knock on the door to invite to church or to, to straight up uh, cold call evangelize can be nerve-wracking for for all kinds of reasons. So is there anything you've helped found helpful to combat that? I know like for instance um for me in any kind of evangelism uh that's not street preaching and even that it's helpful to have preparation for but having like a script in mind so something that's going to that's going to get you on track or I know you you would send us out with kind of uh questions um that that can be helpful. So have you you know speak to that a little bit? Some things that can help get the 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 thing moving and get past some of these fears of man, sinful though they are, but that we we do descriptively struggle with. Yeah, for me, one of the one of the key things is knocking on doors makes me less afraid of knocking on doors. Yeah, and whenever I've gone out, probably in my whole both teaching at the seminary and my own pastoral ministry. I'm always nervous. The first door, I'm always nervous every single time. Even if I did it last week or yesterday, I'm nervous. But by the third door, I'm less nervous. And I find I have an opportunity to talk about the most significant thing that these people are going to encounter. And they might not listen, but as I remind myself of its significance, I get more excited about talking to people about it. I do think having some sort of a script or at least an idea, I find it helpful to start with more general questions, but don't take a long time to get into questions about the gospel. And I've used different sorts of surveys. I've done a Ten Commandments survey. I've done a just a, what we did most recently at the seminary came from another pastor. And uh, it was, you know, do you think that in general, the people around you are more or less spiritual than they were 10 years ago. 
And then how about you? Do you feel like you're more or less spiritual? And then go from spiritual to gospel. Because um, spiritual is kind of a fuzzy word, especially in our culture. But I, I do think having an idea of what do I want to say in the hopes that God would lead me to a conversation about the gospel. And for me, even interacting with objections is encouraging because it helps me think, what is it that is barring people? It, it, it's the Lord's work. But in what ways has Satan captured these people that I might have an answer from God in his word to address their captivity? Um, and, and for me, the fact that I've seen people come to Christ through knocking on doors is one of the greatest encouragement. I, I pray that that will happen here in my pastor in Springs. Um, Harry Metzger used to say, as he walked up to a door, that he thought it might be that in this house, there's someone the Lord is saving, and he might be pleased to use me in that work. And so when you believe in the sovereignty of God in, in salvation, that can be encouraging. Uh, even if they don't come to Christ, my speaking gospel words to them is not in vain. Mm -hmm. No, that's good. I'll just Ed, say too. No, you go on. There. Um, could you talk about kind of the value of making your own tracks and gospel videos? Yeah, so we did that as a seminary assignments. I think um, some of those were super encouraging to me, and I've um, I've I've suggested to people here. Um, who are connected to a student who's done a gospel video, hey, you might use this gospel video in your conversation. Because they've asked me, what can I say to my non-Christian friends? And we're in, um, so I think, and you guys both did that, made a gospel video, and I think there's value in that. I, at some point, I'd like to encourage people who are creative in using technology that way here in Springs to think about what could we make as a gospel video for Springs Reformed Church? Um, and then writing your own tracks, we, we, I've put together, I did it when we were members at Covenant Fellowship, and I'm trying to put something together here, where it's a, it's a gospel, it's, it's a, a small, I, I think often our church, my perspective, often our church brochures are too big to use in kind of cold evangelism. Uh, somebody doesn't want to read a three-page three uh, trifold document, but they might read a quarter-page document. And so we, we developed a Covenant Fellowship, and I'm working on here. Here's an introduction to us, but it includes the gospel in a, in a one, one panel of this you know, four-page pamphlet. And I think it, it lets us think, who is it that we're reaching with the gospel, and what kind of questions are they asking? How can we address the gospel to those questions? It's one gospel. It's one message. But there are all sorts of ways to say it. And so I, I do think... Um, I hope to develop some other individual um, tracks here at Springs Reform, but I'd like to do it with people in the church. So let's brainstorm. What can we do? How can we make a business card size track that we could all carry with us and give to somebody as we have the opportunity to have a brief conversation about the gospel? Mm -hmm. no, that's good. Yeah, I'll just say too, just to sell it, um, you know, and I noticed this when you would send us out two by two in groups and then how we do it here. It, it is a very sweet time of fellowship too. And, mm -hmm. and a unique time 
going out evangelizing. Um, you know, it's just something, you know, getting out onto a battlefield where you're surrounded by spiritual enemies and the galvanizing effect that that can have on the spiritual bond of unity that we have and going through that together and you're with each other and you just had this great conversation and it's just the excitement um, and sweetness of the fellowship of evangelizing with at least one other person and yep. and then the encouragement that comes too when you're weak and a brother lifts you up or they step in and so it is just a uh, you know if we're committed to fellowship and which which I know we are too uh, one of the sweetest kinds of fellowship is, in that sense, evangelistic fellowship. Yep, absolutely. That comes through that. Yeah. Cool. No, um, good. That's that's good. So, again, we, we laced all these kind of questions together because of your unique experience, and I think we'll have time to get to them. So, again, another one, everybody already knows this based on what's been said in the podcast already, but you are, to our knowledge at least, the first man who we've had on the podcast who has been a pastor in an RP church that has served on another continent. And so take this how you want, but are there any differences you noticed or what are some of the differences and similarities that you've noticed in ministry between serving in Australia and serving in the States? I mean, as you kind of already said, there's only one gospel, so it's the one gospel in both places, but you know, again, take take that question however you want. All right. There are a couple of things that come to mind. Um, same, essentially the same theology, but some some variation of practice. Um, I felt like the RP Church of Australia had a more unified one office of elder view, you know, two offices of the church, elder and deacon. And I, I think they were a little more consistent than we sometimes are. Um, although maybe they were a one office view because they didn't yet have deacons. They're, they're still <laughs> working on that. They had congregational managers, which I think flowed out of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland, hmm. which are maybe small D deacons, but they're still working on establishing a diaconate. Hmm. Um, one interesting practice, and I think it was more than just our congregation. I think it was each of the congregations there. After the worship service, everybody sat down. And it was different to us. Usually that's when you get up and you greet your neighbor. And um, as people explained it, I really liked it. But I then said, let's explain this to people so that if guests come, they know what's going on. It's just sit down for a few minutes to consider the sermon and the worship service and ponder it before you get up and start talking to your neighbors and things. So mm -hmm. those are some practice things. I think in my experience, Australia was more outwardly secular than the U.S., mm. although the U.S. is going sharply in that direction. Mm. Uh, people are friendly, so gospel conversations weren't that difficult, mm. but I didn't see a lot of fruit. Now, was that because of the outward secularism? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in the same period of time with kind of a similar effort in evangelism, less fruit in Australia that I think was influenced by the secular. Like people listen to you, but they don't really want to hear it. Mm -hmm. They'll listen politely, but not maybe interestedly. Mm -hmm. The other thing I, I just, I spent 10 years there and I wish I'd better understood the culture, the Australian culture, the Australian Christian culture and the Australian RP culture. And, you know, having left that, I think of questions that I should have been asking from the beginning, you know, why do you do what, what do you do? Not in terms of work, but 
you know, what do you do in terms of life and experience and why do you do it? Those kinds of questions. I think, um, I, I feel like now I know how much I didn't know when I was serving in Australia and wish I'd known more than, or had learned more than. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of hear you say, I think, I think it was, Alan, your son, Pastor, and Laramie now, and, and his wife, Elle, and I, telling Allie and I uh, that they, had, I think it was Japan they were talking about, had similar experiences. Like, outwardly speaking, one of the most polite cultures mm. uh, you could have been around. But there was like this hidden hardness uh, also underneath. And and so it was, it was like you you could think you're getting somewhere with how polite they are, but it's it's also like, just under that soft surface is just this rock hard heart that just doesn't care. And so, yeah. would, would you, I mean, was that kind of what you were? I think so. And and the the conver the, the evangelism that led to conversions that we observed were primarily through long time relationships, which I think even in America is 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 a significant way to do evangelism. Mm -hmm. But we we didn't see people come to Christ through knocking on doors. Um, people in other RP churches that were leading people to Christ, they were their friends or their coworkers who'd spent a lot of time with their Christian friends as they came to understand the gospel. So maybe that secular cultural hostility was enough there to, to stop kind of a cold call type of evangelism from bearing fruit. And again, it's the Lord's work, but he calls us to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget what the statistics were, but they're crazy. Uh, in one of Dr. York's classes, um, the it's like seven or eight out of every ten that come into the church do th do so through a friend or you know someone inviting them that they knew. Um, that doesn't mean we still don't go door to door and and from throughout the villages and preaching the byways and the highways and tracks and all of that. But statistically, it is just overwhelming. Like you said, uh, typically people do come through the the relationships. Yeah. 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 Cool. No, that's good. Um, so with this last kind of main question, again, it's our, our kind of our flagship question, and it is geared more towards that second purpose of the podcast, which is to serve young and aspiring pastors. Um, and, and we're not always 100% clear in how we word this question to men, but to kind of clarify now, you answer how you will, or, or you know, however you've thought about it. But when we're asking what, what men's philosophy of preaching is, uh, we're not so much asking about theology of preaching because, you know, using doc, Dr. Whitla's categories, they're like, we should all, as RP pastors, have the same theology of preaching. It's in that blue book rooted in the scriptures. Um, you know, we should all believe the same things about what preaching is, why we do it, et cetera, et cetera. We're kind of more interested, though it's a harder question, I think, to answer. We're a little more interested in men's philosophy of preaching. So how do they particularly preach? Uh, why do they preach the way that they do? What is their style? What is their... And I know some of yours, and so, you know, um, 
specifically the way you do morning and evening? I'd be interested to hear that. Like to me, that's more of a philosophy of preaching question, you know, or or your emphases in in preaching. You know, for instance, you have these different schools of redemptive historical, expository, experiential. And and they all should be biblical. To me, they fall on the spectrum of emphases or whatever. Uh-huh. So that's that's more along the lines that we would like this question to be answered. But I know I just kind of hit you with that live on the air here. So take it how you will. But but that's kind of what we're getting at. Okay. Well, let me take a stab. Um, obviously, I think preaching is is to be aimed at the heart. It's not just information. It's not a lecture. Uh, so I. My sermon outlines and my sermons have a lot of you in them. Um, it's directed at the, at the hearers. Uh, they're calls to do, they're calls to be, they're calls to think. It's, it's not, and, and it's always in the context of the gospel. Um, otherwise, we get into moralism. And, and I mean, that's probably a, a given. I try, although I don't, I know I don't do it every time, but I try to have the gospel in each sermon in the context of the passage, not just a gospel commercial. I heard someone speaking about a pastor and said, he he always has a gospel commercial every sermon. And I'd rather have someone have a gospel commercial every sermon than no gospel. But I try to connect it into the passage. Um, I I preached through Philippians and, you know, in this, in this call to rejoicing, where's the gospel in that I'm now in Jonah. So how do we see the gospel in, in Jonah? Um, what I'm currently doing is it's been uh, it, it's kind of I think will be my practice through the rest of my ministry, although never say always or never say never. I'm preaching through books of the Bible chapter at a time in the morning. And then in the evening, I'm focusing in on one portion of that chapter. Part of it, there, there are a couple of goals for me. One is to cover more books of the Bible to the congregation. And I'm at the age, because I remember that you said I was older, that I don't have as many years as you do to preach the whole counsel of God. And so I don't have five years to spend in Romans. Um, I'm going to spend 16 weeks in Romans, believe it or not, Lord willing, in a couple, in a month or two. Hmm. Um, but I'll, it'll be 32 sermons, an overview of each chapter. And then whenever you pick you know, how can you pick the most important portion of Romans one or two or yeah. three? Well, it's not going to be the most important. It's just going to be a portion that I'll emphasize. I find for me, it's easier to prepare. And I've had encouraging feedback from the congregation that it's it helps them focus in on one text for the day. Now, we're, we're pretty, our, our brains can handle multiple sources and that kind of thing. So the other thing that I do that's connected to that in a way is, as you know, Joe, I'm maybe Aaron does as well. I'm writing a weekly household worship guide to complement the preaching with the encouragement that the congregation use it. Obviously, they don't have to. But the way that I'm doing that and and I little plug, I'm doing this as part of my doctor of ministry program for our BTS and never thought when I started the project that I'd be field testing it in the you know, in person, but I'm glad that I am. And it's helping me revise it. I spend Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the weekly family worship guide reviewing the passage preached the previous Lord's day, not just repeating the sermon, but reviewing the passage. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
previewing the passage to be preached the coming Lord's Day. And I've had some very encouraging response from people in the congregation. Some just say, we knew we should have family worship, but we know what to do. This gives us a guide. That's one of my goals. A second goal is this helps us remember the sermon all week long or be ready for the sermon when it comes the next Lord's Day. And that's that's a second one of my goals. And then a third is just thinking about remember the Sabbath day and observe the Sabbath day, looking backwards and looking forward. Um, and, and I think really my household worship guide or family worship guide fits into my philosophy of preaching. It, it's a way to help the hearers of my sermons think about the content longer because we're all in one way or another bears of small brains. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not only my daughter, I won't name which one who at lunchtime on the Lord's day, when it was time to talk about the sermon after lunch said, who preached today, dad? I happened to be the one who preached that day. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't pastoring at the time, but you know, she'd forgotten between morning worship and lunchtime who preached, let alone what the sermon was about. And we can all do that. And so to have some reminders in advance and afterwards about what the sermon was about has been helpful to me. And, and I think helpful to the congregation. When, when you're putting together those uh, uh, family worship guides, what what uh, makes up the content? Like how, how detailed are you? Are you asking like three or four um, conversational questions in each uh, day or what does the uh, what does the guide look like? Yeah, so it, it ends up being a two pieces of paper folded in half. So an, an eight page booklet, if you will, the front cover and the back cover aren't as much content. That's just that just holds holds it in place. And then I, I roughly take. Well, I, I'm finding it's not as consistent in terms of how I do it, but uh, I have about. 150 to 200 words of commentary. Sometimes I just quote from commentaries. Sometimes I just write my own words about a portion of the text each day. Um, you know, kind of in a simplest way to think about it. If I did a third of the text day one, a, a, the middle third of the text day two, and the last third of the text day three, that divides it up pretty easily. But it doesn't typically divide up quite exactly like that. Um, and so uh, 150 to 200 words, which isn't a lot. Um, and then I usually ask three questions and then I have kind of a, here's some thought questions if you want to go into more detail. Um, and then I, we, we, we put our Psalm of the month and another Psalm that I think fits right into the, to the text. Um, and then some, some suggested things to pray about. Um, those are things that I incorporate into that. If, if anybody wants to see it, they can email pastor at springsreform.org and I'll send them a copy. Yeah, I'll just say, um, I mean, I had the privilege of reading some chapters in your dissertation and, and that whenever that was, um, stirred me up because, because I had seen a need and even a desire in our congregation for something like that to help people meditate and reflect during the week. And, and so I've been implementing that on the ground in a sense longer than you have, but it's all based on your dissertation and and so what I do is is I don't give the commentary, uh, but I have a passage to be read, and it will either be the the complementary passage, the preaching passage, or one of the other passages quoted. Mm -hmm. Have three to four uh, 
both review questions or applicational or further application questions that didn't make it into the sermon that I would have liked to have talked about, but didn't three to four questions per day. Um, a, a Psalm to sing one of the Psalms from the service, a point of prayer, and then also a prayer family, uh, to, to pray through, to have people praying through. And it really has just become part of my sermon writing. Like it's just molded in. Like I don't consider myself now to be done with a sermon until I've provided my congregation three days of family worship or private worship, whatever, based on that sermon. Um, and so doing the two sermons a week uh, on different texts, I don't do any preview. It's just three days of review for each sermon. But, you know, getting at what you said uh, this was something uh, Petrus Van Maastricht talks about in his book on preaching, that that apart from reflection and meditation, much of the fruitfulness of the sermon is lost. I mean, generally speaking, I don't think it's the primary application of the parable to sower, but at a, at a small level, that happens every week, even in, you know, what's going to happen with that word preached, you know? Um, in in all of our hearts, even in the believing hearts who have repented unto life and, and and are that regenerate person, but then every week that whole process in a sense plays it over. You know, are we going to forget about that that seed that was sown even in our regenerate hearts? Is it going to be choked out through the week by the cares? And I think these family worship guides, because once you get in the flow of man, I don't know. I just I've seen the people be really thankful for it. Like you said, it gives them a basic guide for family worship. It helps them to be meditating on things and. And and those that actually use them, like you said, it's not obligatory or anything, but I've just heard really good feedback. And so thank you uh, publicly for for that work. And and I think it's something that, um, you know, more guys could think about because it does does really seem to be really helpful and appreciated. Yeah, and I think it does emphasize that preaching is not just a one-off event. It, it, what is required of those who hear the word of God preached? And yeah. one of those things is think about it put it into practice, talk about it. Um, and so I think that fits into the philosophy of preaching. And, and that's, it's interesting. I, you know, I was working on this project before I was back in the pastorate and was convinced it was pretty useful. It could be useful, but it was all theory. And now I'm doing it for practice. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a guest preacher, you know, two or three times a month, I didn't have that opportunity for the ongoing connection with people and the text. Um, that I that I have now in an established congregation that's using this guide. So I'm I, I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it's been good. Um, cool. So we've come, we've come to the time, the mystery time. We'll be having two mystery questions. I don't know. Is Hanson's episode out yet, Aaron? No, no I'll, I'll publish it tomorrow, so it'll be out okay. a week after this podcast comes out, or a week. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we started a new swath of four guys. Ed doesn't listen to this podcast anyway, so he has no idea what's going on. I won't know. Yeah. He, he, would have, he, he would have no idea. So as people will see in that episode, uh, we're doing two questions, two questions. One of them was a, a listener asked question. So we want to shout out respect to our listeners and ask their questions. But then Hanson begged for another. And so you get another as well. So first mystery question that a, a young pastor who's a listener is just dying to know is what do experienced pastors do with their dust jackets? Do you toss them or do you keep them when it comes to your books? Dust jackets, toss or keep? 
I keep them and I take them off when I'm reading the book. That's good to know because they are one of the most annoying inventions of men if you try <laughs> and keep it on when you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's probably the good middle ground uh, to have. I mean, I get rid of them myself, but a lot of it is to just, the, uh, I like the looks of, of them out without it, but it is just so frustrating for me to have to grab a book, take the jacket off because I ain't reading it with it on there because that's just going to get frustrating. Well, the other thing I'll mention in that regard is I do a lot of electronic book reading. That's right. You And are. there are electronic dust jackets, but they're pretty much out of the way unless you, unless you look for them. <laughs> so that's the other thing to do with your dust yeah, jackets. Read, you read electronically. Just go digital, man. Just go digital. <laughs> cool. All right. Second question, a little more mysterious, a little more theological. We're looking to solve the mystery once for all. Who wrote Hebrews? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. He authored it. He didn't write it. Uh, you're, not, you're not getting out that easy. <laughs> when I quote Hebrews in a sermon, I almost always say, as the author of Hebrews said, <laughs> and then I quote them. So I haven't decided. Um, maybe Apollos, but I don't know. Going with the Apollos. <laughs> That, that's what I said, Ed. Hey, great minds think alike, Aaron, and ours do too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I didn't see you coming with Apollos, man. That's going to that's gonna make me laugh if we end this whole thing with an Apollos streak. <laughs> no, that's good. But that's I do. Good. I usually say, as the author of Hebrews said, and that, that way that we don't get distracted by it. Very good. Very good. All right, Aaron. Yeah, I've got the energy to close us out, man. This oh, is yeah. thing. I've got I've got so much energy. All right. This has been a another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, an anthology of pastoral theology. Our guest has been Ed Blackwood, pastor of Springs Reformed in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado. Ed, thank you so much for uh, joining us and uh, allowing us to interview you on this podcast. You're very welcome. It was fun. You yeah. I appreciate you guys a lot. Yeah, appreciate you. If you have been thoroughly gruntled by this podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use. You can share this episode on social media. If you have a question you'd like us to ask the pastors that we have on this podcast, or you'd like to suggest that we have your pastor on the podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Amen.